trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is one of those rare occasions, well, maybe it's not so rare anymore, where there's so much going on, it's it's really tough to figure out where to begin. But fortunately, I have my friend Eric Peters from Eric Peters Autos on board. We're going to make sense of this one way or another. Eric, how are you today? Well, I'm good. We're going to try, aren't we? It's like playing whack-a-mole. You know, you hit one and another one pops up. I, I know the big thing on a lot of people's minds today um, is, uh, so the orange man is going to be arrested. Uh, give me yeah. your thoughts on uh, on how the world will be saved once uh, once Trump has been arrested. <laughs> well, isn't it uh, another case of, hey, look, a squirrel. It's another idiot distraction. And uh, on a deeper level, it's also another really stark example of the cynicism and corruption of the system that we live in. And by no means am I defending the orange man. I'm not a big fan. I always have to preface everything I say about him with this. But we're talking about this pedophagery, legalism, uh, wherein he, back in 2016 or even before that, supposedly paid off this paid hoe that he was seeing, Stormy Daniels. And that somehow is <laughs> its the crime of the century that they're going to frog march a politician. I mean, if that's the standard, every single politician in, in, in Washington probably is guilty of the same and ought to be rounded up and frog marched before a judge. Yeah, I'm, I'm still marveling at the fact that here we are 20 years later after the uh, invasion of Iraq, and George W. Bush is still walking around a free man. John Bolton has no of fear of going to prison. These are guys with literal blood, you know, of, of innocent people on their hands. And yet, uh, no, Trump, we got we got to do something yeah. about this guy. Yeah, you know, exactly. Right now, uh, you know, I make fun of Keeve. I use that term uh, just to sort of express my exasperation with uh, that particular subject. But these people in Ukraine who are, are suffering, you know, and, and the Russians also, Right now, apparently, there was an attempt once again to settle this in a reasonable and peaceful manner, to have some kind of a ceasefire and talks. Oh, no, we can't have that. We've got to continue to slaughter these people and, and egg them on into further slaughter. Uh, never mind all that. Trump paid off Stormy Daniels. You know, that that's yeah. the kind of situation that we're dealing with. Well, I, I'm determined that uh, I'm not going to play the squirrel game. I'm not going to be as, as distracted as, as they would like me to be. But uh, but I am concerned at some of the stuff that I see looking around. For instance, I'm looking at the banking situation yeah. and, and, and wondering, okay, where is this going to lead? Um, any thoughts on, on the developments since last week of, you know, the collapse of SB, SVB and, and other banks? It, so, it sounds like uh, the government is exploring how can we nationalize the banks? Hasn't that been tried sure. before? Well, a moral hazard, for one thing, has been taken out of the equation. Uh, I'm a big fan of moral hazard. You know, back in 08, uh General Motors and Ford uh, should have been allowed to go bankrupt because they were running their businesses poorly. Instead, the government stepped in and said, well, it doesn't matter that you guys ran your businesses into the ground. Uh, we're going to use the taxpayer to, to, uh, to make sure that you remain in business. And essentially, that's what's happening with these banks that mismanaged the, uh, the operations of their banks. And now, you know, the taxpayer is on the hook for this. And so what does that imply for the future? It tells other banks, sure, go ahead. Uh, pursue your woke agenda, throw money at environmental boondoggles, and when you collapse, Uncle Sam will come in and bail you out with the taxpayer's money. Yep, as long as you're not one of the little people, we've got you covered. Exactly. Exactly. You know, it's socialism for the rich, and it's like vulture capitalism for everybody else. 
Man, well, that's that's a fair assessment, I think. Uh, you wrote an article last, I, I guess it was, uh, was it the 17th? I can't remember. Anyway, you uh, you had an article on driving. Yep. And yep. I got to say, this is one of the more interesting things I've come across in a bit. Let's let's talk a little bit about uh, what you cover in that article. What what prompted you to write it? Well, what prompted me to write it chiefly was that hor- horrific story uh, that we talked about last week. Uh, that young man who was shot to death. Oh, in Farm- uh, in Utah, Farmington, Utah. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because he asserted that he didn't need the government's permission to drive his vehicle or to register it. And he was attempting to have a conversation about that with these government workers with badges and guns, and ultimately he got shot to death over that. So I got to thinking about it, and I got to uh, thinking about the historical context of that term, driver. And if you look into it, you'll find that once upon a time that referred to somebody who drove a carriage or a commercial conveyance. Uh, and it was not somebody who owned a private vehicle and was just using their own private vehicle to operate on the public right of ways. And what they succeeded in doing is by this etymological leisure domain, and they're really good at this. You know, they use all this language to manipulate people uh, to get people to accept the transitioning of what had been an acknowledged right, meaning your right to travel to use the public thoroughfares without government permission, into a conditional privilege. And they've been wildly successful at that, uh, and that's what the article gets into. Yeah, that uh, that whole story has has just been it's been interesting. Not only in that it's it's a clear demonstration for those who are paying attention that uh, there there is no law, no rule so small that government won't kill you in order to enforce it. But it also shows the, the, I'm just going to call it the depravity of the public to look for any reason to believe that the state is right. And and, and it's astonishing how few people can recognize the persons who were escalating that situation um, were the cops. It wasn't the kid in the car who, I mean, look, he may have been talking nonsense for all I know. He, he may have been just babbling, you know, babbling some kind of legalese that, uh, that really made no sense, but that didn't make him a threat to the public. And it certainly didn't mean, you know, we need to physically break his window, drag him out of the car. And then when someone notices, Oh, he's actually got a holstered gun here, start screaming gun. And then everybody backs up and uses him for target practice. Yeah. Yeah. Clearly he was harmless in the first place. Uh, what he was doing, i.e. driving around, uh, in the way that he was driving, was harmless. There's not even an allegation that he committed a moving violation or drove his vehicle in any way that presented a threat to anybody else. So the, the initiation of it was based on this pedophagery, this legalism. Well, he didn't have the appropriate piece of paper in his possession, and that's what led to this escalation. And it always bothers me, particularly with regard uh, to people who are kind of on our side of the aisle, you know, conservatives, uh, right-wing people, if you will, uh, who will defend the actions of government workers in a case like that? Because they'll, you know, they'll say something like, "Well, he violated the law." Well, so what? You know, the question ought to be: Is the law itself reasonable? Uh, are the actions of these people reasonable? And of course, the answer to that is no. You know, this idea that that you can be shot to death by the side of the road because of some petty fogging legalism because you didn't have a piece of paper is insane to me. Something you point out in your article, too, and I love you, you use the DMV customer service. Um, the last yep. time I was in the DMV, I started to remember a cartoon that I had seen of a guy standing at the counter at the DMV telling the woman behind the counter, I'm here to pay you money for permission to use what I already own. <laughs> I went, exactly. Wow. Well said. <laughs> that's yeah, direct. that's exactly right. And, you know, if Americans could, would return to thinking that way, uh, we might recover America. It's not a service when you when you don't want it and you're first forced to pay it. Uh, somebody is not your representative when they don't do exactly what you told them and you haven't got the power to 
to tell them to cease and desist if they're not doing what you told them to do. Uh, if the government asks you for something and you're not free to say no, then they're not asking. They're telling you and so right. on and so on. No, I, I'm with you. And, and you know, the don't look for uh, any media watchdogs or the press to ever come down on the side of the citizenry. They love, no, you know, they love to come down. Well, we back the blue, and of course, those brave officers. Why uh, there was, you know, that guy had a gun. But it's, it's there's a there's a big difference between okay, so he had a gun in his possession versus he was threatening people with that gun. Sure, you know, I think it's the, the general problem here is one of thoughtlessness. You know, people don't think about things; they just they sort of knee jerk react. They don't pause and reflect. Uh, I'm a big fan of Jordan Peterson's. I don't know whether you listen to him and uh, follow do. him or not. Oh, I, I like him. One of the things, yeah, one of the things I really admire about him is his judiciousness. You know, somebody will ask him a question, uh, often in a very adversarial context. A, a leftist reporter will ask him something, and he'll be very careful. And you can see him think about his answer. He takes time to deliberate it in his mind before he says anything. And we need a lot more of that, in my opinion. No, I I would agree. It's uh... We have our work cut out for us. If you're if you're determined, you're going to be a free person. Um, you can't be concerned with well, what's the popular and uh, safe position to take. Sometimes you're just going to have to uh, you're going to have to be bold and and stand for truth, even if it leaves you standing all by yourself. Well, and what about just standing for humanity? You know, it's ironic to me that these people who present themselves as liberals. Um, I, you know, I think they're really leftists, but at any rate, they're among the most inhuman, inhumane people imaginable because you can't simply have a civil conversation with them. They will angrily respond and lash out at you. I think it would be a wonderful thing if we could recover our humanity and look at each other as people, uh, that we've got value, that we have feelings, and that, that it's, it's, it's appropriate to deal with one another with civility and kindness rather than anger and hate. Amen, bro. Speaking of dealing with each other with kindness, we've got to take a real quick break. But when we come back, Eric, I want to share with you an experience that I had at the emergency room at the local hospital last week. And uh, I I know you'll appreciate it because it involves the filthy face diaper that apparently is is, uh, required apparel when when entering the hallowed halls. of uh, of the uh, healthcare facility. So, we'll continue our conversation with Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. By the way, there is a link in my show notes to his excellent website. Don't just read the articles. The articles themselves are wonderful. Check out the comments too though. He's got some very savvy people who regularly read and comment on those articles and uh, you'll you'll learn a lot. So, we'll be back in just a few moments. This is the Brian Hyde show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com is my guest. All right, Eric, uh, I I briefly alluded to this last week. I think I texted you about uh, a little encounter I had at the local emergency room at uh, at our local hospital here in southern Idaho. And, uh, you know, I've been very successful at avoiding masking, you know, for for a bit now. And actually, I've, I've... my mom's health has, has not been good, so I've had her in and out of the, the hospital a couple of times here in the last couple of weeks. And uh, we took her in last week and, you know, working through the process of getting her admitted to the emergency room. She's in terrible pain. And uh, pretty soon I've got this nurse coming up to me and saying, sir, you're going to have to put on a mask or you have to leave this area. 
And yeah, lovely. Speaking of human kindness. Yes. I, and, you know, I mean, I had skirted it before. Nobody had said a word to me, but I, I wondered because, you know, every they hand you a mask as soon as you walk in. I just take yep. the mask, stick it in my pocket. Thank you very much. Um, I, yep. I, I don't use that time to debate them. But in this case, I just simply looked her in the eye and told her, I will not be wearing a mask today. And I mean, I did it as politely yep. as I possibly could. Mm-hmm. And, and and immediately, I could just see in her eyes the, whoa, people apparently don't say no. And, and she says, well, you, you can't be in here then. Uh, she goes, you can go back and wait in your car if you want to, but uh, but you can't be in here. And I was like, well, you know, if that's what I need to do, then I guess that's what I'll, what I'll have to do. And uh, fortunately, my mom had a friend who was there with her, you know, to, to help her if, if she needed it. But uh, um, I did not go to my car. It was very cold and, and windy. And mm-hmm. so I just stood in the uh, kind of entryway. You know, there was there's automatic doors that uh, open and close. I just stood there so I'd be out of the wind. And uh, and waited for about 20 minutes or so, and then my mom's friend came to get me. And I turned around, and there's hospital, there two big hospital security goons standing there at the desk. And I realized, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, I scared this poor nurse. I I really wasn't trying to be intimidating. I was being as polite and matter of fact as mm-hmm. I could. But by simply saying no, she hit the panic button. Holy cow! No, I don't think you scared her. I think you affronted her authority. That is one of the the worst side effects of this weaponization of hypochondria that we've been dealing with for the past three years. You've got these, these busybodies who now have been given leave and authority uh, to assert themselves in a manner that heretofore they were unable to do. You know, there's an element of heartlessness here, given the context that you were dealing with, uh, as well as idiocy. Of all people who ought to know better, a nurse, a doctor, this hospital, these hospitals, they know this is kabuki, you know, if they're not absolutely deranged themselves. And yet, this is the place where you will find uh, the most rancid rem- remnants of the cult of sickness abounding. It's just, it's, 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 it, I stutter. I, I, I sometimes have trouble coming up with words for it. Things that you and I, who aren't doctors, know because they're facts. These medical professionals who ostensibly know something about disease and respiratory illnesses and so on are continuing to pretend otherwise. Yeah, it was it was a real interesting experience, and and I got to tell you, it's it's partially because uh, because of who you are and our regular conversations. I, yes, the easy thing would have been to just go ahead and shut up and put on the mask and mm-hmm. just okay, you know, do it. I can't do that. I I can no longer, I can't compromise another millimeter, and and I won't. And yep. that doesn't mean I'm I'm out there looking for a fight. I didn't go there with any agenda. And, and the nurse, you know, when, when it was time to go back to, to my mom's room after she'd been admitted, um, the nurse is like, well, if, uh, you know, if you'll just put this mask on while you walk through the hall. And I, I made a motion as she started to hand me a mask. I went, I have one. I still have the first one you gave me. And I made a motion like I'm going to hang this over my ear as I walked through the door. But I mean, as soon as I was through the door, I'm like. Nope. And then I had a little CNA following me down the hall, and I mean lecturing me every step of the way. You have to wear a mask, and we all wear masks, and blah, 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 and I'm just noted. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. Noted. But uh, I, yeah, yeah. I, And note the cruelty there. They have to wear it, see? Yeah. They are very much like the prisoner uh, who, uh, who screeches when he sees another prisoner who manages to get over the wall. And it's about resentment and anger. They have to do it, so so do you. Yeah, it was, it was a really... Uh, well, it, it really, uh, first of all, it made me determined, man, I never, under any circumstances, want to end up in that hospital ER um, as a mm-hmm. patient. It's just, there, there is something about that bureaucratic mindset, and I think it comes from the top down. Um, wow. It, it, well, it sure does. You know, we've talked about this previously, 
lot of people don't understand uh, that medicine has become corporate medicine. It's uh, these hospitals are owned by a, a relative handful of chains, healthcare chains, and they get their marching orders from on top. And the doctors are no longer the the independent practitioners that they were in my dad's day. My dad is a doctor, was a doctor. Uh, they are employees of the hospital. And as an employee, you do what you're told. You know, they may have a medical degree, but they're still an employee just as if they were the janitor down in the basement and they're told what to do. And so most of them bow their heads and do it and they go along with it. And, you know, it begs the question, you know, you're, you're going to these people for uh, ostensibly to help you with a health problem. I don't trust them anymore. It's no longer a matter of I'm angry at them for pushing this. I don't trust their judgment. You know, if they're going to tell me that I have to put on this ridiculous mask, what else are they going to tell me that's absurd and potentially a threat to my health? And that's so I not agree with based you. Stay in away reality. from these people. And it's not something yeah, that's based stay away in science. From these people. Yes, they're not to be trusted. I think we now have an opportunity to purpose due diligence and seek out, uh, whether it's doctors or anything else, people who have a mind and are willing to use it and whose judgment we respect and trust, rather than these head ducked people who are just terrified of, of disagreeing with whatever the Mc, corporate McPolicy is. Well, and I also came to the realization, and, and I thought I was there already, but but I realized, no, um, it's hard to, to be perceived as, as you know, the, the a-hole for, for standing mm-hmm. up for your rights. But but if you're, gonna, if you're going to be a free person and if you are going to stand up for your rights and you're not going to give up another inch, you better be prepared to be despised and thought of as, as out of order, you know, by, by people who've been brainwashed into thinking that uh, freedom is selfish. That's right. But that's important, you know, to, to get over that, that we are not the a-holes. You know, we're the people who are doing the kindness by attempting to point out that the proverbial emperor isn't wearing any clothes. It's not doing anybody a favor by participating in this delusion, in this evil delusion that has been oppressive and evil, uh, you know, on a scale heretofore unimaginable. Yep. Well, I got to thank you for your influence because, my friend, as as I uh, sat there weighing my options, you know, with with Nurse Diesel staring me down there, <laughs> I uh, I just realized, nope, I can't I can't compromise yeah. on this, and I'm I'm not going to be unruly, and I'm not going to be loud. Um, my dad was a loud guy when he got angry, and I, mm-hmm. I'm not going to be that guy, but I'm not, I'm not giving no. an inch. I have said from the beginning of this, if enough of us, and it wouldn't have taken more than probably about 25% of the population, if enough of us had just politely refused to go along with this, it would never have gotten as far as it has. Amen. Yeah. Yeah, I, I listened to a podcaster named Andy Frizzella. He is, uh, shall we say, less restrained. I mean... <laughs> He, he he drops a lot of f bombs, but uh, but he yep. sa- he says the same thing. If if people would have just stood up and said not only no but hell no, you know, at the yep. very beginning, we never would have found ourselves backed into this corner. But here we are, and and you're not going to yep. agree your way or comply your way out of it. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, you know, the parallel sometimes gets a little old, but it's still relevant. You know, if you imagine being a German in the uh, mid 1920s, let's say. And you heard this clown with his little armband shrieking on a street corner. Uh, you know, instead of just walking by or pretending that it was legitimate, if you said, you know, who is this jerk and what is he saying? This is wrong. We shouldn't do this. You know, if enough people in Germany had said that, they could have spared themselves a whole lot of trouble in the world, too. Absolutely. But that's the kind of thing that can only happen when a person has actually taken the time to consider. What are the foundational principles of my life? Who am I? What do I stand for? If you can't answer those questions with some degree of confidence, 
um, you're going to take the path of least resistance, which is usually to submit or follow wherever the herd is going. Yeah, and you know, when you do that uh, internally, something tells you uh, that you just did a, a wrong thing and you feel shameful and you feel small and you feel weak, whereas you feel the opposite. When you allow your moral compass to guide your path and you do what's right because it's right, and, you know, damn the torpedoes. If other people uh, are, are triggered or offended by that, well, so be it. Uh, you can look yourself in the mirror and stand up like a man, and that's important. Here, here. Eric, great as always to visit with you. Um, I look forward to whatever it is we'll be talking about next week, because I'm sure this week is only going to get spicier and more exciting. Yeah, strap on. I'm getting ready, too. Okay. We'll talk next week. Again, that's Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. We'll be back in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Man, it is such an interesting week. There is so much going on. And I don't just mean, you know, in the news cycle and politically and geopolitically and so forth. I mean, it's like somebody turned up the intensity to 11, and that's just in my personal life. But uh, enough about that. So here's something to consider. Right now, some of the biggest headlines, I think, are are intended to distract us from weightier matters at hand. And, of course, you know, the the impending arrest of Trump and everything, uh, that's got to be one of the big ones, just because a lot of people are emotionally invested in Donald Trump, and and, uh, it's it's guaranteed going to get a rise out of people. However... There are other things that uh, that are also of importance, you know, like, I don't know, a general collapse of the banks and that sort of thing. Um, and I, by the way, I'm not trying to sow panic here. So so please understand, I my goal here is not to, you know, tell you, go go get your money out of the bank and, you know, we got we to gotta do this now. It's There's no time to waste. It's just that, uh, I guess, the way I look at it, I think James Howard Kunstler is the one who pointed this out. There's no way that governments or, or institutions or powers that be can spin a bank collapse or an economic collapse in their favor. They just, they can't. They can try to, uh, you know, ride the wave. Well, well, here, have this Fed now, digital currency. That'll solve your problems. And yes, and make you into a kind of an electronic slave. But, uh, you know, other than that, it's, it's a great answer. Really, what happens when people start feeling economic pain? And I mean generally feeling economic pain. Come on, we've seen this happen in other places. People either turn out or they pull down whatever system is in charge because uh, because their lives suck and they want to do something about it. By the way, I'm not suggesting and it's going to be a great thing. It's going to be an upgrade for us. I'm just saying there's there's great danger and there's also a great opportunity for change, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be change for the good. So one of the questions that I saw asked that I thought was particularly on target was Paul Rosenberg asking, are we ready for a sovereign debt crisis? Now, he's coming at this from the standpoint of he's looking for solutions. But uh, maybe you're like me, and, and really the, the phrase sovereign debt crisis, I don't know that that's actually ever you know crossed my mind. You know, I don't think I've, I've spent much time thinking about it. So I wanted to give you Paul Rosenberg's take just so you can have a feel for yourself of maybe this is what we're up against, and, and, and maybe what he's talking about, specifically he's talking about Bitcoin, maybe one of the ways forward. Minus, you know, government and central banks. That's, that's, to me, one of the strongest arguments in favor of Bitcoin. Here's what Paul Rosenberg says. He says, I've been warning Bitcoiners that we needed to be the adults of finance for quite some years. 
And he says, I'm pleased to say that we've come a long way in that direction. Now, I'd like to see more, he says, I still see more juvenile behavior than I'd like, but progress has clearly been made. And he says, I bring this up because we're the only one, we're only one or two sovereign debt crises from Bitcoin becoming a major asset. So how we behave now will matter a lot more than how we behaved eight or ten years ago. Now, he says, our personal behavior has nothing to do with the operation of Bitcoin, of course, whether we're saints or whether we're buffoons. The blockchain will continue to pump out a new pump out new blocks every 10 minutes as it has since the beginning. But he says it matters a great deal to people who need to protect their assets and are forced to look into this controversial Bitcoin thing. People in the midst of financial disaster will need to make judgments about us, having previously heard conflicting reports. And he says when they take a harder look, they'll need to see thoughtful, responsible operators because humans in crisis look harder at people than they do at numbers. Ooh, that's a truth that needs to be written down. People, humans in crisis look harder at people than they do at numbers. That's an instinctive thing, by the way. He says that they'll decide because of us more so than our arguments. I'm sorry to go off on this tangent, but this is one of the reasons why I believe and why I advocate for becoming the best possible person. And I mean the, the, of the highest character that you can become is one of the most revolutionary things you can do right now. Why? Because of what Paul Rosenberg is saying here. Because when times become much, much harder, people will look at you. What kind of person are you? And if you're a person who can walk the walk, guess what? They will trust you. They will listen to you. Pretty interesting. I was just happy to see him make that argument. Now, if people see snarky adolescents, he says they're going to miss the only lifeboat available to them. They'll be ruined, and some significant degree of it, he says, will be our fault. Over the past 10 years, he points out, there have been debt crises in Cyprus and also Greece and Venezuela, Lebanon, Argentina, Ecuador, Ghana, Zambia, Sri Lanka. All of these were contained by the usual suspects who just printed more money, increasing the overall insolvency of the world's fiat money regimes. It was the governments and the bankers who were actually bailed out. Huh, of course with the non-elites left to suffer. But the game was still kept together, and the big systems were protected. By the way, that's what we see happening right now in the U.S. And did I just not see a headline yesterday that uh, the Biden administration, among others, is looking at ways, how can we how can we guarantee, basically, um, under the FDIC, guarantee all $18 trillion worth of money that people have in the banks? Oh, well, why don't you just nationalize the banks? Oh, thank you. We thought you'd never ask, because that's, that's what they're moving toward. Nonetheless, Paul Rosenberg says trouble is still afoot and further debt problems are coming. Japan is massively insolvent, as are more or less all Western nations, and it's only a matter of time with both inflation and stagnation, not to mention war, rolling over so much of the world, easy times for insolvent mega-debtors may be drawing to a close. Now, he says that's been a fool's wager for a long time, but eventually reality asserts itself. So some defaults will come the traditional way with governments refusing to pay off their bonds or paying pennies on the dollar. Other defaults will come via inflation, where the bonds will eventually be paid, but in massively less valuable currency, or currency units, I should say. Either way, the non-elite population will be economically smashed unless they can get their value into an independent currency. And And the set of independent currencies these days includes Bitcoin and pretty much nothing else. So he says, consider, and he gives you some sample cases. There are going to be millions of people like these 
and they'll be looking for any available option, regardless that their overlords brand such things as foolish and evil. So he says, consider the owner and operator of a mid-sized construction firm. He needs to keep reserves for payroll and project financing, but his national currency is being destroyed. More importantly, he owes bills and currencies that aren't being ruined, so what is he to do? Paying bills and employees in gold is all but impossible, and foreign exchange controls are either in place or threatened. Bitcoin is the obvious answer, but when he looks at Bitcoin, does he see an effective system ready to go or a jumbled mess of promises? Consider the elderly widow with enough money for her last years, but not a lot more. Her bonds are being redeemed at a reduced rate, but that rate will probably drop lower and lower. She has clung to the system as if it were her husband, but there's no evading the fact that it has failed her. She's frightened and has been ripped off before, but won't survive being ripped off this time. When she looks at Bitcoin, what does she see? He says, consider the successful retired investor. He or she is up to date on events, knows the bell is tolling for their portfolio. He's been scared away from Bitcoin several times, but has heard the pro-Bitcoin argument as well. But now he has to make a very serious choice. Does he stay with a leaking, a leaking rather, and sinking ship? Or does he go to the despised Bitcoin? When they look deeper, what does this person see? So Paul Rosenberg says, look, you get the picture. We can help these people greatly, helping ourselves at the same time, or we can turn them away from their economic salvation. None of this will change the blockchain, but it will make a tremendous difference to millions of basically decent people. And he asks, what would, your, what would you like your legacy to be? Isn't that something? Now, again, I, I'm not trying to use this to, to hawk Bitcoin, okay? I Personally, I do not hold any, any cryptocurrency, but I have been leaning that direction for quite some time. And the more I, I read about uh, not just Paul Rosenberg's take, but other people who are pretty informed on the blockchain, the more I start to understand that the, the beauty of the system, the value of the system is not the particular unit. Well, Bitcoin is worth how much? Why wasn't it worth this much yesterday? And look how volatile that is. I get it. It, it is a volatile thing. And no, it's not uh, unlike fiat currency in that there is nothing tangible backing it up. However, the system itself, that blockchain system of a secure, unfalsifiable ledger, that is peer-to-peer -peer, rather than having to use a middleman of some central bank or other, you know, governmental uh, regulatory agency to accomplish some sort of transaction. That's very appealing to me. And the fact that it's off limits to uh, sneaky little government fingers and prying little government eyes, I think that's, uh, that's probably the strongest argument in its favor. And, and I know there's a lot of different uh, cryptos out there. There's, you know, people who will, you know, extol the virtues of this token or this kind, you know. Bitcoin has been around the longest, though. It's probably the most recognized. And frankly, there are businesses that are learning to do this. I have a regular email conversation with my friend Bill up in Meridian. Bill, shout out to you here. Um, because I know he's asking similar questions and he's trying to, to sort this out, too. How can we do this? We see what's coming at us. It's a brick wall coming at us at 120 miles an hour. What are we supposed to do? And I, I don't have a firm answer. In fact, I, I, I can't really answer for you just because... You, have, you know what's best for you. You know what your goals are. You know what you're, you're trying to accomplish. But I would strongly encourage, take a closer look at cryptocurrency, even just a portion of your money in cryptocurrency. If you maintain your own wallet, you're keeping it out of the hands of the people who want most to control you. I don't see how that's a bad thing. All right, we'll be back in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Thanks again for being a part of our growing crowd of wrong thinkers. I know it's not important to be part of the crowd, but I don't know about you. I get just a little bit giddy anytime I encounter someone who says, hey, I, uh, I've awakened or I'm in the process of awakening, which is usually more accurate to, to describe what's happening. It's not like suddenly, bing, yeah, we understand all at once all the ways we were lied to, all the ways we were misled or otherwise manipulated into doing somebody else's bidding. So uh, I congratulate those whose eyes are fluttering open for the first time, and I get it. It's painful. It's it's very much like Plato's allegory of the cave. You know, you're you're stumbling your way out into the sunlight. It's bright. It hurts your eyes. You're ugh, what what's going on here? This is a whole different world than what I thought reality was with those flickering shapes on the walls. But it's a better world, and it's worth whatever pain and effort it takes to get out of the cave and. And if you are like most people, once you have discovered what's up there in the sunlight, you feel a sense of duty to go back and and to bring up as many people as are willing to come up out of the cave. I still think that, uh, you know, Plato's allegory of the cave is is one of the most brilliant uh, teaching tools out there. And and it, it has really stood the test of time. Flickering images on the wall. I mean, Plato was talking about, you know, shadows cast, you know, against uh, the light of a fire. But, uh, you know, how many of us have a big flat screen through which we watch flickering images on the wall? Right? That's our perception of reality. They even call it reality television when it's anything but. So one of the big challenges, though, is to see things as they are rather than uh, see them and think, well, I wish it was like this. And I'll put my rose-colored glasses on and just, uh, you know, see if I can adjust my vision. I want to share a couple of excerpts from an article from Jeffrey Tucker. This one really hit me. Not only because uh, of of the subject matter, uh, but Jeffrey Tucker has been such a consistent and principled voice of reason over the last three years. He was one of the very first ones to start calling out the lockdowns and the various official you know pronouncements and policies that were being instituted that were stripping us of our freedoms and killing our economy. So his article is called "The Day the Sunrise Was a Curse." He says, March 17th, 2020 was the first day of the end of civilized life, the one for which Western peoples had been fighting for a thousand years. It was the first full day following the lockdowns that ended all rights and liberties, including even the right to have friends for dinner or go to community worship services or attend or hold weddings and funerals. The sun had fallen the previous day just after the press conference announcing 15 days that stretched to 30 days and then to three years of quasi-martial law imposed for a virus. But he says, nature is oblivious to the affairs of men. And so the indefatigable sun rose anyway the next day as if to do what it had always done, bring its light and warmth to bathe humanity in a new hope in the new day. The sun did peer up over the horizon and did bring its light, but he said this time it did not bring hope. It shone over a world but only highlighted the absence of joy, opportunity, and excitement over the unexpected blessings that would come our way. All of that had been taken away and suddenly, seemingly without warning, The sun that day shone a light on wreckage and terror of a society consumed in tyranny and fear. It was there as if to mock hope. It's every ray broadcasting disdain for our own sense of security and confidence in the future. It's every hour above the horizon torched our optimism, including all of its signs on earth, music, dancing, and human relationships. It became obvious that this would keep happening day after day. The sun cares not for lockdowns, regardless of what the masters of the worldly universe did to us. It was at that point we all had to make a choice. 
despair, or fight our way through this thicket of disaster. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says some of us took longer than others to decide, which is understandable, because the shock and awe imposed upon us also disabled our clarity of mind. Three years later, we should know the answer. We must fight. The sun in its rhythmic regularity of rising and falling is always beckoning us toward living meaningful and free lives. Otherwise, what possibility could be the point? He says, we recall those days now and wonder how and why this all happened. Not one minute has passed since that day when I've rested from asking that question. Every day it feels like we get closer to knowing. And yet the truth keeps being ever more elusive with every revelation of the depths of the conspiracy, the range of the players, the interests at work, and the forever toggle between fear, plot, ignorance, and malice. At some point in the last three years, even the official story of why seems to have slipped away from public life. The lockdowns didn't work. The travel restrictions were pointless. The plexiglass, the one-way aisles, the oceans of sanitizer dowsing everything, the constantly changing regulations on whether we should stand or sit indoors or out, and the two yards of distance mandated between any two people were all brutal failures. The masking that hid our smiles for two years achieved nothing but dehumanization. Then the magic bullet, the so-called vaccines, flopped too and even multiplied the suffering. And then at some point it all just went away. So what precisely are we supposed to believe was the reason they wrecked the world as we knew it? He says, I can't even seem to find an attempt at an explanation anymore. All I see are trolls uh, hounding us to this day for having chosen the wrong tribe during the great upheaval. Well, he says, the tribe I chose was the one that decried the whole thing. But that was not fashionable or, but that was not the fashionable or winning side. To this day, we are despised for having been right. Lacking a big theory and a clear sense of a single cause, we've tended to replace it with a narrative. We know that the virus was already spreading in the U.S. many months earlier, perhaps in September 2019. We know that vaccine development started sometime in January. We know of all the calls between muckety-mucks in late January and early February. We know that the elites led by Anthony Fauci seem to have all gone, in, gone all in rather on lockdowns by February 27th of 2020. And we're getting ever closer to a read of the mind of Donald Trump, too. We see that he tweeted on March 9th that this bug was not likely anything to worry about. The next day, he bragged that Democrats say he's doing a good job. And then two days later, he announced that I am fully prepared to use the full power of the federal government to deal with our current challenge of the coronavirus. Someone got to him on the 10th. We don't know who or how, and we're not likely to find out either because, as we've discovered over the last six months, it was national security that was in charge. That means the real answers are clouded in secrecy. We've all seen it coming. When civilization crumbles, the real reason why it crumbled would be classified. At some point, he says, in the years of my philosophical formation, a book appeared called The End of History by Francis Fukuyama. Now, the argument was big, but the basic point was that with the end of Soviet-style totalitarianism, humanity had come to a consensus in favor of democratic capitalism as the best system for guaranteeing human rights, freedom, and prosperity. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says, my friends didn't like the book. It was too Hegelian, too much premised on the American ideal as an imperial construct. He says, I had uh, no merit of his no opinion rather on the merit of Fukuyama's arguments, but he says, I did know I wanted it to be true. And looking back, he says, it's clear to me now that I had long assumed that it was true. Like so many others, I had not noticed the foundations of freedom were cracking under my feet. When friends would scream about trends in academia, media, and corporate life, I dismissed the warnings as overblown. History had already ended, I assumed. So all that was left for us was to write about tweaks and fixes on the way to the final utopia. 
He says, I even celebrated the rise of big tech as ushering in a beautiful anarchy. And then in one day, it was all gone. That day was three years ago. Today, three years ago today. The sun rose, but no amount of light could take away the darkness. St. John of the Cross writes about the dark night of the soul, the moment that comes in every life when one detects the seeming absence of God and we sense the terror of having been wrong and sense only isolation and darkness. The burden of his book is to map out the story of such a life and to reveal its inner purpose. The point of the dark night of soul in all its desperation is to inspire us to find our way on our own as mature adults to the light of salvation. Here's a quote from the book. As a traveler into, a, into strange countries goes by ways strange and untried, relying on information derived from others and not upon any knowledge of his own, it is clear that he will never reach a new country but by new ways which he knows not and by abandoning those he knew. So in the same way the soul makes the greater progress when it travels in the dark, not knowing the way. End quote. So the sun is out as I write, says Jeffrey Tucker, the same sun that was out there before the darkness fell. So it will be tomorrow and the next day. Our job is clear then. Get through this period of suffering and find our way back to true enlightenment. Now that may seem, you know, I don't know, if that strikes you as, well, it's a little too philosophical really for this early in the morning. Um, I think he has a great point though. None of us really understood the depths that we would be dragged down to with those initial lockdowns. And, and sadly, you know, like most people, I went along, well, we don't know, this is going to kill us all. We all went along with it, thinking, you know, nobody's going to take advantage of this, but they did. So, now we have other choices to make, and there are other crises that are looming. Dare say some crises may even be bigger than the coronavirus. I guess if there was ever a time to get clear on what your foundational principles are, where you stand, what you are willing to, uh, to do, to, uh, to stand up for what you know is true. This is that time. So don't look to uh, the media. Don't even look to uh, popular, good-looking, and uh, well-spoken individuals such as myself. <laughs> Humble, too. Nope, it's, it's time for you to sort out where is your heart? What are the uh, truths upon which you would base your life? And once you've got those sorted out, stand on those truths and do not budge. This is The Brian Hyde Show.